Hello and welcome to the 19th episode of Karl Marx's 18th premiere of Louis Napoleon Reading Group series. Today is Monday the 28th of December 2020 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. It's time to wrap up Chapter 5, The National Assembly versus Bonaparte. This week I have the new patron Rohan Orton to thank. If you like extra patron only episodes and live streams head on over to patreon and donate me some commie dollar it really helps me keep these episodes flowing also make sure you get your copy of understanding class by eric olin wright for the new reading group starting in early january it's going to be a long one okay let's jump right back in let's start in here today we got the last few pages of chapter five, which is Napoleon versus the National Assembly. So this is going through how Napoleon slices and dices up the National Assembly and manages to weaken the party of order prior to the coup. What's after happening last week was that Napoleon managed to, he put out a rumor about Changarnier, that Changarnier was going to basically disobey orders or get people to shoot on somebody or other. And this like fake news that he put out there, it enabled him to be able to sack Changarnier, which he wanted to do to weaken the party of order. He was like the defender of the party of order in the army. And he also managed to sack all of the ministers and he put in his own ministers. And at this point, the party of order flipped their lid and they said, no, no, we're not letting these ones in. And so that's where things have things were left last week. So I don't know who wants to go first. We've got quite a bit to read here. Maybe, Kyle, do you want to kick off? The extraordinary measures that Parliament has announced with so much noise fizzle out on January 18 in a no-confidence vote against the ministry without General Changanier ever being mentioned. The party of order was forced to frame its motion in this way to secure the votes of the Republicans, since of all the ministry's measures, Changanier's dismissal was precisely the only one the Republicans approved of, while the party of order was in fact not in a position to censor the other ministerial acts, which it had itself dictated. The no-confidence vote of January 18 was passed by 415 votes to 286. Thus, it was carried only by a coalition of the extreme legitimists and Orleanists with the pure Republicans and the Montaigne. Thus, it proved that the party of order had lost in conflicts with Bonaparte not only the ministry, not only the army, but also its independent parliamentary majority, that a squad of representatives had deserted its camp out of fanaticism for conciliation, out of fear of the struggle, out of lassitude, out of family regard for the state salaries so near and dear to them, out of speculation about ministerial posts becoming vacant, such as Odilion Bau, out of sheer egoism, <clears throat> which makes the ordinary bourgeois always inclined to sacrifice the general interest of his class for this or that private motive. From the first, the Bonapartist representatives adhered to the party of order only in the struggle against revolution. The leader of the Catholic party, Montalembert, 
had already at that time thrown his influence into the Bonapartist scale, since he despaired of the parliamentary party's prospects of life. Lastly, the leaders of this party, Triel and Belial, the Orleanist and the Legitimist, were compelled openly to proclaim themselves Republicans, to confess that their hearts were royalists, but their head Republicans, but their heads Republican, that their parliamentary republic was the sole possible form for the rule of the bourgeoisie as a whole. Thus, they were compelled before the eyes of the bourgeois class itself to stigmatize the restoration plans, which they continued indefatigably to pursue behind Parliament's back as an intrigue as dangerous as it was brainless. <laughs> what can we say here? I really like this part here where he uh, talks about all the reasons why the Parliamentary Party of Order had started to lose people. You know, out of family regard for the state salary so near and dear to them, out of speculation about ministerial posts becoming vacant. But... <laughs> But, but primarily, which is true, it's out of the fear of struggle, fanaticism for conciliation. People, you know, Marx is very hard on Napoleon, but like Napoleon's no fool, even if he plays a fool. You know, he seems to have been like a very, very astute political operator. I mean, he's dumb in some ways, but he can flex nuts, you know? He can like play power games. Is this very like... When people make comparisons between him and Trump, I think this is what they're talking about. He's one of those. By the end of this paragraph, the, the two monarchist factions, the Orleanists and the Legitimists, pro proclaiming themselves Republicans to try to outflank him. So I think, it, yeah, again, compared to Trump, he does have the ability to call bluffs, but he also has the ability to back down when he knows he's, he needs to. He has the ability to make a tactical retreat. And Trump's playbook is exclusively <laughs> never back down and right. never admit fault. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's much more sophisticated than Trump. But I mean, that's the, that's the type of intelligence that we're talking about. He has like a knack for political wrestling. He knows when to throw an opponent. He knows when to like lean into something, you know, not throw, you know, like he, he, he's politically astute. Yeah, and I, I think the, the other difference I should sort of clarify is that Trump sometimes backs down by way of getting distracted from the issue he was involved in, whereas it feels like Bonaparte, Louis Bonaparte, could actually back down tactically, not just accidentally. Yeah, we saw him fall into the, remember a couple of, a while ago when the social democrats got a big new vote in one in, i think in 1850 and he he fell into the arms of the party of order he just totally threw himself at their feet yeah or like when the assassination plot comes up he actually has like tactics to deal with that right like when he get when he gets outed for trying to run an assassination plot one thing i wanted to say about this paragraph again i want to highlight the end Instead of uh, making stupid reference to contemporary politics, let's talk about an underlying theoretical issue. That you actually have the loyalist restorationist bourgeoisie acknowledging that the parliamentary republic, in Marx's words here, is, was the sole possible form for the rule of the bourgeois as a whole. Right? There is a debate within Marxism, generally speaking, between a sentiment espoused by Marx and, and Marx and Engels, 
that the parliamentary republic is essentially, you know, that's necessary in order for the proletariat to come to power. That it's the necessary form for dictatorship of the proletariat, right? And then, then there is a sentiment that's usually quoted and espoused by Lenin, right? That you can't have a better rule for the bourgeoisie than parliamentary democracy or whatever. This isn't that late in Marx's over. This is what, like 52, 1852. We have royalists being outflanked into abandoning their restorationist plot and acknowledging that in the name of bourgeois class interest, they need to put that silly romantic business aside and accept the parliamentary republic in France where, you know, they chopped off the head of the monarch to install a republic. I I guess, like, what's the connection between this section and that debate over whether the parliamentary republic is a favorable condition for the proletariat or an unfavorable condition for the proletariat? Good question. Well, (laughs) what we can say for sure is that the way Marx is sometimes portrayed is that he simply thought that the parliamentary republic or like the Republican form is pretty much the expression of like a proletarian state or something. And I know that's, it doesn't really hold up, but this is a debate that sometimes had. Clearly Marx believed at least at this point, or at least, at least by 1852, Marx had read this historical event as really putting parliamentary republic as the ideal form of class state for the bourgeoisie. That's despite what he might've thought like tactically about the proletariat coming to power Engels makes it explicit that he believes it's necessary. But yeah, right here in 1852, we can see Marx looking at royalists acknowledging the parliamentary republic is the bourgeois class state. Right. It just seems to me that it's like ambivalent regarding the proletariat's tactical position or strategic position, because, you know, that could be true. And also it could be the case that it is necessary for a proletarian revolution for the dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm -hmm. It could also be true. It's the ideal form of the bourgeois class state, and therefore it's uh, antithetical to the interests of the proletariat. But what's definitely not true is that the parliamentary republic is the expression of the proletariat state. It's the expression of the proletarian class interest. If Marx ever had that point of view by 1852, he says, you know, this analysis flies in the face of that. Right, Uh, right. Sometimes when people are scared off, by dictatorship of the proletariat for good and bad reasons. They try to get around it by doing some form of extreme democratic republicanism. I'm certainly like sympathetic to this, but what you can say for sure is that there's some hope of superseding that, that Marx has. Right. I don't know. Is that too much of a curveball? Like this is a, this is a big, you know, debate in what Marx thought and, you know, Marxist state debate. I'm not trying to make an authoritarian point that, you know, democracy sucks, bro. But no, you know. no, I, I, I think that makes sense. Like it, 
it kind of follows that, you know, given Marx's critique of bourgeois right, that the parliamentary republic would be seen as a limited form that would hopefully be superseded. Yeah. And, you know, whether it can be in real life, you know, that's another question, right? <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah of course. That would be nice would be like if there was a way to uh, represent everybody, you know, because like in democracy, usually just, you know, it's a democratic form, but it's not a, de- it's not a democratic reality. Yeah. It's a class dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. No, but I mean, like, even if you vote, like, like, let's say it's like in a group of friends and you like vote on something. Well, I mean, you know, six people want to do something out of 10. Well, uh, four people are out of, you know, I know what you mean, but in, in your example, like, with a small enough group of people that will basically represent almost everyone. If y'all want to go see, if you're trying to decide between two movies, you know, someone wants to see depressing foreign film. Everyone else wants to go see the Avengers four. You know what I mean? Like if there's like four people, then, you know, that's like pretty good. You got like 75%. If you have like, I don't know, a thousand people, the margin can be a lot narrower. And at least with movies, you could split up and do different things. On the level of a whole society, democracy is supposed to imply some level of majoritarianism. Yeah, but I think there should be like some kind of weighting because sometimes it like for ninety percent of people, the decision is not really relevant. Like maybe for one percent of people, it's like extremely important. Okay, so like, and it like affects them like a lot. So, like, this is normally, in the liberal tradition, made in the guise of, like, rights for minorities. I mean, this is explicitly set out in the Federalist, right? And I'm not even saying that as, like, a diss. Just because it's put in the Federalist under the guise of protecting the rich doesn't mean there isn't some kind of legit claim for, you know, minorities. Like, I mean, you know, indigenous people living in the United States territory, Canadian territories is a good example. Yeah, maybe there is some way to do it where you can like, you know, like balance things. Yeah, that would be, that could be something like a transcendent form. Yeah, and I think if you get rid of uh, classes, then, um, you know, it's not really the same as a federalist. Yeah, I guess there's still the question of a form. If Even if you get rid of the classes, you know, what form guarantees they don't come back and we'll answer that in the next five minutes of course okay let's keep going i'll read this bit the no confidence vote of january 18th hit the ministers and not the president but it was not the ministry it was the president who had dismissed changarnier should the party of order impeach bonaparte himself because of his restoration desires the latter merely supplemented their own Because of his conspiracy in connection with the military reviews and the Society of December 10th, they had buried these themes long since under routine orders of the day. Because of the dismissal of the hero of January 29th and June 13th, the man who in May 1850 threatened to set fire to all four corners of Paris in the event of a rising, their allies of the Montagne and Cavignac did not even allow them to raise the fallen bulwark of society by means of an official attestation of sympathy. They themselves could not deny the president the constitutional authority to dismiss a general. 
They only raged because he had made an unparliamentary use of his constitutional right. Had they not continually made an unconstitutional use of their parliamentary prerogative, particularly in regard to the abolition of universal suffrage? They were therefore reduced to moving within strictly parliamentary limits. And it took that peculiar malady, which since 1848 has raged all over the continent, parliamentary cretinism, which holds those infected by it fast in an imaginary world and robs them of all sense, all memory, all understanding of the rude external world. It took this parliamentary cretinism for those who had destroyed all the conditions of parliamentary power with their own hands and were bound to destroy them in their struggle with the other classes, still to regard their parliamentary victories as victories and to believe they hit the president by striking at his ministers. They merely gave him the opportunity to humiliate the National Assembly afresh in the eyes of the nation. On January the 20th, the Moniteur announced that the resignation of the entire ministry had been accepted. On the pretext that no parliamentary party any longer had a majority, as the vote of January 18th, this fruit of the coalition between the Montagna and Royalists proved, and pending the formation of a new ministry, of which not one member was an assembly representative, all being absolutely unknown and insignificant individuals, a ministry of mere clerks and copyists. The party of order could now work to exhaustion, playing with these marionettes. The executive power no longer thought it worthwhile to be seriously represented in the National Assembly. The more his ministers were pure dummies, the more obviously Bonaparte concentrated the whole executive power in his own person and the more scope he had to exploit it for his own ends. <laughs> Pure dummies. <laughs> I don't know. You probably haven't been paying too much attention to all the, the kind of parliamentary shenanigans during Brexit. But like Jeremy Corbyn got convinced to take like a parliamentary route about how they could like try and stymie and make Boris look bad but all it did mm. all it did is just handed the prize to Boris talking about parliamentary cretinism it was the greatest exposition of it I've ever heard like I, I must think that someone like Dominic Cummins has read this and really understood it like I don't know he's just got good political instincts but um yeah like this idea of parliamentary cretinism is is it universal now <laughs> oh what like strike it trump by uh, you know voting out people that hate him in his own party kind of thing yeah i mean in terms of terms of like the political world yeah it's pretty normal it smooths over the conflicts within parties in favor of the conflicts between parties I do remember during the sort of Corbin interlude between elections, listening to British leftists on sort of like, you know, uh, Novara, not Novara, but like, uh, what is it? Uh, Tribune's podcast. Yeah. And they were feel they were all sounding very demoralized about the parliamentary strategy like, oh, you know, look, it's it's making some progress in the polls, but uh, it's uh, very uninspiring, unfortunately. Yeah, but I think it was later on, there was a particular period right just before the election where there was a lot of votes where, like, basically Boris got defeated in, like, 17 votes in, like, 20 days or something. And it was like, 
like a world record for the British Parliament. And when they went to actually the country then, he just totally wiped the floor with them because he managed to position himself as, as the one who was trying to get it done. And these other Egypts were just like trying to obstruct. And so while in all of these things, he looked like a fool in all these different votes, but he was able to just basically make the simple point and it just made all that other stuff. Just, it was just like fodder for politicals who thought they were getting somewhere and normal people yeah. would just look at it and go, what's all this rubbish? Oh, just get the fucking thing done. Let's give it to Boris. Right, right. There's a thought like within the political sphere, I guess, that you know they're making headway against the executive, but really what's happening is that like by attacking part of the parliament, really what's happening is the whole parliament is getting their reputation is being dragged down. And there's a thirst for action and a desire for a strong executive that rears its head. These are the, the things that Lib's nightmares are made of. Yeah, and the the executive like can sort of stand astride the two worlds, right? Like as Marx has mentioned many times that, you know, the executive could be the embodiment of the will of the nation in an undiluted form, uh, as well as being sort of primus inter pares in, in the British system. In this case, you know, it's a different thing because the president isn't in parliament, but yeah. Okay, are we ready for the next bit? Uh, Esri, what's wrong on my uh, what's wrong on, what's wrong on my saucy comments? <laughs> uh, to excavate a months old Twitter meme, go to horny jail. Tom bonk bonk with the horny bat. Um, the horny jail. That's that's a place I have been many a time. <laughs> what's going on here? Tom, Tom How did we really, get to this topic? Say really weird shit in the chat, like yeah. Like lick that like like button, fornicate with that like button, <laughs> that like button, you're a sex object. Seven um, creeps oh, up with the like button. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't I don't see what you do in YouTube. You know, it's, it's getting kind of hectic. This is, this is uh, way hey, out there, I mean, Tom. It's got to I mean, be done. You, you've got a thousand YouTube YouTube subscribers, right? I mean, it must yeah, it must be working. You know, one thousand and. 135 or something fucking amazing like that yeah nothing to do with the quality of your commentary on here hey and me hey hey it's all about how weird and horny you are in chat that's that's (laughs) sexy horny chat it definitely helps yeah it definitely has fucking right it's way more effective than the bullshit we talk about right okay uh esri or or Mm puya who wants to read the next bitch i I, I can read it in coalition with a montagna the party of order revenged itself by rejecting the grant to the president of one one million eight hundred thousand francs, which the chief of Society of December 10 had compelled his ministerial clerks to propose. This time, a majority of only 102 votes decided the matter. Thus, 27 fresh votes had fallen away since January 18. The dissolution of the party of order was progressing. At the same time, so there might not for a moment be any mistake about the meaning of a coalition with a Montaigne. It scorned even to consider a proposal signed by 189 members of a Montaigne calling for a general amnesty of political offenders. It sufficed for the Minister of the Interior, a certain Vasse, 
to declare that the tranquility was only apparent, that in secret great agitation prevailed, that in secret ubiquitous societies were being organized. The Democratic papers were preparing to come out again. The reports from the departments were unfavorable. The Geneva refugees were directing a conspiracy spreading by way of Lyon all over the south of France. France was on the verge of an industrial and commercial crisis. The manufacturers of Roubois had reduced working hours. The prisoners of Belle Isle, which is also in Detroit, were in revolt. It sufficed for even Amir Vasset to conjure up a red specter and the party of order rejected without discussion a motion which would certainly have won the National Assembly immense popularity and thrown Bonaparte back into its arms. Instead of letting itself be intimidated by the executive power with the prospect of fresh disturbances, it ought rather to have allowed class struggle a little elbow room so as to keep executive power dependent on it, but did not feel equal to the task of playing with fire. Okay. So we were talking, I think, a couple of chapters ago, how about after they got rid of the universal manhood suffrage, because he got rid of all the votes, he went to the party of order and said, hey, can I have like a franc for every vote I've, I've lost? <laughs> and, and they went, well, no, we'll give you 1.8 million. And he went, all right. But now after he pissed off the party of order, they went and basically said, right, we're not going to give them the 1.8 million. But when they did the vote this time, a load of more people had basically gone over to Napoleon's side. And at that moment, then they, they, the, the Montagna wanted to get something out of the party of order for voting with them, they wanted to get something for themselves. That was the release of political prisoners. And basically, they said, get the two fingers to the Montagna, says we're not releasing these. Even though it would have been really popular, it would have sent Bonaparte back into their arms. So it showed again... What was most important to them was what Kyle would always say, tranquility. That's <laughs> tranquility. Tranquility. There we go. Yeah. There we go. This is the point that's coming in this chapter again and again and again. That this idea that they were actually the party of order, the two things were really interested in their legitimist or their Orleanist roles and uh, monarchy is actually being disassembled through these maneuvers that um, Napoleon was making and that what we were seeing was their underlying true class interests. You know, we got, we talked about this, I think last week, you know, their, their enemy is not really Napoleon. Their enemy is really the communists or the social Democrats or whatever you want to call them, the, the working class. And at all times, at all times, they put their own personal power behind the need to crush the workers. Absolutely. It is interesting the ways in which they sabotage themselves in the name of maintaining uh, solidarity against the, the working class. It's like they literally got out. They got out politics is the kind of key point. It's not that they couldn't have been dominant over him, over Napoleon, but they basically fell into all his traps. Yeah. I mean, how, how good of a trap is, you know, for, for every vote that won't be cast? Give me Frank. <laughs> as like a cash grab you know <laughs> like that's the most sympathetic cash grab you could make it's, it's pretty amazing napoleon's got those gambling debts to maintain so you know C could you imagine you know the equivalent of platypus in france at that time looking on at that or like spiked they'd be like oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. they'd walk right into it oh my god 
they would be saying how it was like good that he could get 1.8 million francs, you know, and it was like a proper payment for the universal suffrage getting taken because he's undoubtedly going to spend it on the working class, isn't he? <laughs> right. On some sausages. Vive les saucissons. Saucisson. There we go. There we go. Uh, vive Napoleon. Vivant les saucissons. At least Napoleon's given us sausages, you know? What the, what the fuck is uh, Parliament no. doing for us? Revolutionary sausage program. Who Seriously. needs the work? Who needs the workhouses when we can have sausage picnics? That that sounds that sounds more perverted than anything I ever wrote in the chat, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I I for one will not be part of this revolutionary sausage fast. Thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, universal manhood suffrage was a limited program, and. Uh, the true revolutionary program was beyond it. Uh, Ezri, do you want to read this next yeah. section? Let's do it. Transition ministry. Okay. Meanwhile, the so-called transition ministry continued to vegetate until the middle of April. Bonaparte wearied and befooled the National Assembly with continual new ministerial combinations. Now he seemed to want to form a Republican ministry with Lamartine and, and Bilot, now a parliamentary one with the inevitable Odilon Bureau, whose name is never missing when a dupe is necessary, then a legitimate ministry with Vatimesnil and Benoit de Asie, and then again an Orleanist one with Malaville. While he thus kept the different factions of the party of order in tension against one another, and alarm them as a whole by the prospect of a Republican ministry and the consequent inevitable restoration of universal suffrage, he at the same time engendered in the bourgeoisie the conviction that his honest efforts to form a parliamentary ministry were being frustrated by the irreconcilability of the royalist factions. The bourgeoisie, however, cried out all the louder for a strong government it found it all the more unpardonable to leave France without administration. The more a general commercial crisis seemed now to be approaching, and one recruits for socialism in the towns, just as the ruinously low price of corn did in the countryside. Trade daily became slacker, the number of unemployed increased perceptively, 10,000 workers at least were breadless in Paris, innumerable factories stood idle in a bunch of places, etc. Under these circumstances, Bonaparte could venture on April 11th to restore the ministry of January 18th. Messieurs Rouleau, Fould, Beroche, etc. Reinforced by Monsieur Lyon Falcher, whom the Constituent Assembly during its last days had, with the exception of five votes cast by ministers, unanimously stigmatized by a vote of no confidence for sending out false telegrams. The National Assembly had therefore gained a victory over the ministry on January 18th, had struggled with Bonaparte for three months, only to have Fold and Baroche on April 11th admit the Furitan Falchia as a third party into their ministerial alliance. So these motherfuckers folded. Absolutely folded. Yeah. Bonaparte played them like a fiddle. Once they rejected his initial 
set of ministers. He came back and basically would give them full legitimist one and then the Orleanist would object. Then he'd go a full Orleanist one and the legitimist would object. Then he'd propose a, a, a Republican one. Then they would the party of order would lose their rag over that and would say... <laughs> That's a that's that's a one of my more uh, colorful expressions. Yeah, what's a what's a good way? Lose their lose their mind over lose their that. Shit. Lose their <laughs> shit. There we go. More scatological. Lose their shit over that. Uh, and so in the end, he ended up giving back a set of ministers full of the people the Party of Order had hated, and even some of them they had actually rejected previously for like breaking the law and and they threw in this guy uh, uh full share into it he was involved in in some scandal earlier on where he sent out false telegrams yeah so eventually they they basically ended up saying no to him and then three months later when all the bourgeoisie were getting very antsy indeed the ministries weren't being run correctly and we were in, heading into a crisis where there might be revolutionary action again and they completely folded and just gave him, you know, the family jewels. It's kind of pathetic. Yeah. What's amazing is that he was able to engender in the bourgeoisie. It's not, he's not just like shoring up proletariat or, or something like that. It's in the bourgeoisie. They're frustrated with, you know, these dueling factions in the parliament. Won't someone just take government take the mantle of government and use it for the love of God. You know, we're, we're heading into, we're heading into crisis. France is without administration. There's socialism, you know, popping up in the countryside because there's, you know, corn is, is going down and blah, blah, blah. Basically the equivalent of the stock market's down. (laughs) Won't we have someone restore investor confidence? Well, and also it's the worry of unrest, right? Of, Of revolt. It's like we need an executive because economic situation is becoming chaotic and uh, we might need to put down a revolt. And we can't do that without a ministry, an executive power. Kyle, do you want to take the final paragraph and we'll finish this chapter out? Yep, sure. In November 1849, Bonaparte had contented himself with an unparliamentary ministry in January 1851, with an extra-parliamentary one. And on April 11th, he felt strong enough to form an anti-parliamentary ministry, which harmoniously combined in itself the no-confidence votes of both assemblies, the constituent and the legislative, the Republican and the Royalist. This gradation of ministries was the thermometer with which Parliament could measure the decrease of its own vital heat. By the end of April, the latter had fallen so low that uh, Palsigny, in a personal interview, could urge Changalnier to go over to the camp of the president. Bonaparte, he assured him, regarded the influence of the National Assembly as completely destroyed, and the proclamation was already prepared that was to be published after the coup d'etat, which was kept steadily in view, but was by chance again postponed. Jean Galnier informed the leaders of the party of order of the obituary notice, but who believes that bed bug bites are fatal? And Parliament, stricken, disintegrated, and death-tainted as it was, could not prevail upon itself to see in its duel with the grotesque chief of the Society of December the 10th anything but a duel with a bed bug. But Bonaparte answered the party of order 
as Agassilus did King Aegis. I seem to thee an ant, but one day I shall be a lion. He always finishes in a flourish. Yes, the the yeah. classical Marx, uh, you know, Marx the classicist always comes out. So I've a, I've a little question here. What did he mean here when he said in November 1848, Bonaparte had contented himself with an unparliamentary ministry? What does he mean by unparliamentary there? I believe he's referring to parliament, or he was referring to ministers who were appointed but were not actually members of the parliament. So similar to like the U.S. president would do with their ministry, right? Like, is that not the the extra parliamentary? That's what that means. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, would that be then the the royalists? Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. It was the initial okay. party of order ministries that he got rid of. Okay, yeah. So he originally had party of order ministries. So they were the dominant force. And they had basically, their ministers were against the parliament, you know, unparliamentary. And after he got rid of Shangarnia and he got rid of those ministers, he put in ones that were basically not even parliamentary party members, the ministers. They were just like nobody's clerks. That's his extra parliamentary one. Mm -hmm. And then on April 11th, he found that he was strong enough to put an anti-parliamentary ministry, which wasn't just like against parliamentaryism in general, like the party of order kind of was. It was against the actual parliament that was (laughs) sitting in there right now, you know, and against it totally as a concept. Exactly. I guess the other interesting thing here is that Shangalnier still goes to the party of order and is like, hey, uh, <laughs> Napoleon's going to move on you. And, and they just sort of dismiss it. They're like, nah, nah, this, this, uh, this, politi- this political waffling we've been doing and the back and forth is going to go on forever. It's fine. Relax. How do you feel in America... Like the feeling that some of this evokes in me for like how kind of a non thing the next, you know, the 2020 election kind of nearly feels like not irrelevant, but it feels kind of like secondary to what's happening kind of socially in the country. Oh, that's that's very fair. Yeah. I think most people are concerned with how comfortable masks are at the moment. Just wait when Kanye becomes president with a <laughs> dominionist a dominionist ministry and uh you know America becomes explicitly a theocracy under Kanye as president you know we'll all be shaking our heads thinking how wrong we were yeah under woke gilead you know yeah exactly yay. <laughs> president yay yeah i mean if he can get on the ballot i mean sure but I don't know. The real question is, which way is he going to split the vote? Because he's like the perfect candidate where he's like, yeah, I don't like mass incarceration, but also uh, we got to get rid of abortion. It's against God's law. If if you didn't have a reason to sit out 2020 people, I mean, Jesus. <laughs> if, no if, Kanye, if Kanye got on their vote, if he actually got on the vote everywhere, there actually is a chance he could win the goddamn presidency. Yeah. Yeah, and and like uh, like Trump, he was he his run is probably in his mind primarily a way to promote his projects, right? Like, you know, he's obviously not thinking like putting the presidency first. Hey, at least Trump like announced in time to actually be president. 
this was sort of a July 4th surprise before the election. Like in Arizona, I think you you have to get like cleared to even be a write-in candidate, right? I just wonder how it's going to work. I think the turnout's going to be extremely low. I don't know. It could be anything, Puya. I, I think it could be, even though I feel it feels irrelevant like to some extent of what's happening in society. Yeah, I don't know. It could go any which way. It's very difficult to know. I I feel like as far as politics go, things are basically back to business as usual. You know, in terms of the pre-COVID back and forth between the Democrats and Republicans and uh, Trump, they've kind of just like gone back to their usual sniping at each other. Bernie not being in the picture, just just the kind of parliamentary sniping we see here. Orange man bad. Yeah, yeah orange man bad. Definitely in Ireland, orange men are bad. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Look, I would be surprised if Trump's family had something to do with them. Oh God! <laughs> you know, there could be a there could be a personal friend connection there. Well, I think there's going to be a low turnout because of the coronavirus, in part. Does anyone in America give a shit about the coronavirus anymore? I mean, you have to. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, people, like, even Arizona, which famously libertarian, right? Like, yeah. really doesn't even want to, didn't even, I mean, I think there was some kind of, like, shelter in place thing here. I'm a little sketchy on that because I wasn't here then, so it wasn't in my field mm-hmm. of view, so it didn't exist. There's been like a 30-day shutdown of, you know, bars and water parks and that sort of thing, uh, which if you can imagine, those okay, things not, so having not been closed down before. It, it's, it's, so it's not like the Mask of the Red Death, but like literally the entire society instead of the uh, aristocrats sh- shutting themselves away in a, in a castle. I, I wouldn't say it's, it's the entire society. Like if you go to IHOP, there's... A lot of people at IHOP without masks. <laughs> Mask of the red pancake. What the hell is IHOP? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. IHOP uh, is a pancake. Inter- yeah, that's the International House of Pancakes. Fuck. That's uh, <laughs> IHOP. I, I, it's I don't know. Like... I don't know how actually internationalist it is. So the, the <laughs> yeah, very. I think it's only the United States. I <laughs> know uh, we we, we we also have IHOP in Canada. It's it's more internationalist than the DSA, at least. It's 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 like the the World Series, like where there's one Canadian team, so it counts. Uh, but, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, like the sort sort of like the absurd PB anti you know public health mm-hmm. activist core was very agitated about not being able to go and have pancake breakfast in their, uh, you know, IHOPs and so on. Right. Like, there's kind of a push to reopen, but, I mean, I think a lot of people are looking at the statistics and seeing them go off the charts. Yeah. So, like, there is some degree of sanity in American society. But but it's everybody with, like, that has no say in anything. Right, 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 right. (laughs) It's very part, it, like, it's still strangely partisan, but there have been enough spikes where you have California and Arizona putting in measures at the same time. And California's, you know, and Arizona are usually 
thought to be, you know, politically quite different, you know, blue state, red state. Although I think from the outside, well, they have more I in was common just thinking, than like, in a place like Texas where the hospitals are overflowing. Like there's got to be a lot of Republicans who are dying. I mean, that's got to sway opinion to some degree. Like I think in the, is it like in early August, they're expecting, I think in August, they're expecting 28 million people to be kicked out of their homes due to like rent unless something is done. Like that could have just crazy, in one fell swoop, that could have crazy impacts on what's happening in the country. Yeah. So I don't know. Needless to say, the election is very far from most people's minds. They're probably no. going to be historically low turnout. I, I agree with Puyi on that. I don't know. I've been talking to liberals that are traditionally like against e-democracy, like because, you know, Koch brothers, this and that, Russian hackers, etc. But now are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we probably won't have anything like, you know, voter turnout without something like e-democracy. Yeah, there's a push to reopen. They're putting the kids in school, which I think is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, like the uni- that's it's frightening. It's yeah. like unbelievable. They're basically just saying like children's crusade style, like, uh, you know, it'll toughen them up. There's a new there's new research out. There's new research. I don't know if anybody heard it, that five. They, they estimate now five percent of people who get get it not five percent people who get it badly but five percent of people who get it go on to ending up with uh, neurological disorders so that'll be kids as well a friend of mine her husband well, he's my friend too he he works as a as a neurologist in the nhs here and they were thinking should we send like they were saying will we send our kid back now you can actually start sending your kid back to school a couple of weeks ago here or a week ago and he was like no fucking way. He has to, he's he's in the hospitals basically diagnosing, what's that, is it Fukuyama syndrome? And what I called Fukuyama syndrome here is, of course, Kawasaki syndrome. Less the end of history, more the end of motorbiking. The one that, what? So he, there's this syndrome that COVID people get, like the kids get, called, I think it's Fukuyama syndrome. And the- it, Oh, my brain is just firing off. Like, so you think it's the end of history and there's no more conflict? <laughs> That'd be good. No, but he he was basically. We're, I'm not sending. I'm not sending back to school because he's after he's after seeing so many like five and six, God. seven year old kids with where he's had to basically turn off their. Uh, they can't get any oxygen in, and you should turn them oh off for life support. So, like, you know, it is reasonably rare, but it's it's happening. He's he's seen them every single day. So he's like, no, you're not going back to school. So, but yeah. even like if five percent of people, if you get seven, let's say you get herd immunity or something, you get seventy percent of the population to catch this goddamn thing. Like, if five percent of those people have neurological conditions, which are like strokes and other kind of crazy ass things, they're not like I think. I think even stuff like psych- psychosis and things like these are a part of it. You could end up with like in America, that would be twenty. You know, it'd be like fifteen, twenty million right. people with goddamn psychosis or strokes like that is incredible and that's of all ages it's not old people yeah it's my professional opinion that this is not good i I don't even know what to say that so that's horrible no they have to do online school it's probably for the best if they did i know that uh derek is quite concerned about you know teaching with a bunch of children and what's going to happen to those kids he's very you know it's really understandably like bitter about the whole thing like 
I, I guess it brings to mind that in the U.S., public school and public school being the state-funded school is really like a social Darwinist institution, in my opinion. I mean, every queer knows that. So this really brings it to another level. I listened to an interview with uh, your man, Mike Davis, and he was saying that like 80, uh, 1918, I think with the Spanish flu, the first wave came in February. And then, but it was the second wave in August that really killed loads and loads of people. And I think it was primarily an awful lot of people died in India at the time because there was like a, a British engineered famine or something on the time. And that like the kids that died a lot because they were mal malnourished. But like if this, you know, if the virus actually makes its way into Africa and some of the other poorer parts of the world, this idea that it's only old people that are getting hit is probably just it's probably not true. It's just that in the West, you know, young people have enough food at the moment. So he said he thinks we're likely to see a much higher debt rate in places where there's like people suffering from, mal, you know, malnutrition or food shortages, especially in an economic crisis. So he seems to think like it's just going to go incredibly bad in about three or four months time. Yeah, that sounds like a reasonable thing to say. It, or I, I would I would say I don't see a lot of similarity between the current situation in the U.S. and what's going on in this chapter. It's, Agreed. Uh, it's, it's not really the same thing. Analogies between Trump and Bonaparte here are pretty much a stretch. Yeah, it's limited to tension between the executive and this legislature and being able to play factions of the legislature off of, you know, off of itself, essentially, to take whatever low legitimacy it has and further diminish it. Other than that abstraction, it's virtually, you know, not related. On this episode, you heard the team tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. The artwork for the show was created by the Korean artist and author of the 2019 Marx Engels illustration book. You can check out links to his work and Twitter account in the show notes. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. <laughs>